Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. When I was a junior in high school, I asked the girl that I had a crush on in my geometry class to prom. Now, I knew there was a possibility that she might be a lesbian, but she did flirt back with me in class, or that's at least how I read it. I will say that I do have a tendency to misread situations at times. But she did say yes to prom, and we were doing the things that one could possibly uh, believe was leading to a romantic relationship. Uh, We were talking on the phone quite a bit, hanging out a lot. Um, I even met her parents. Her father said to me, that I must be a great guy because she is usually very picky. Well, almost immediately after arriving at prom, I was quickly abandoned by my prom date for the girl she was in love with. I spent the rest of the night by myself, feeling rejected and heartbroken. My friend Nicole would come by and check on me, so that was nice. She was a really good friend. Now, many years have passed, and When I think back on that situation, I understand why she used me. It was 2000, and in my fairly conservative hometown, being an openly gay teenage girl just would have been pretty tough. So I get it, but it does not feel very good to unknowingly be someone's beard. In that same year, the New York-based band Clem Snide release their sophomore record, Your Favorite Music. When I eventually heard this record a year later, with its opening track containing the line into the root canal music of a prom night disaster, I felt this was a band for me. So I ordered Your Favorite Music, as well as their debut record, You Are a Diamond, directly from the band's webpage. And when Your Favorite Music arrived at my house... I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Beef, Barzalay, that's me. Uh, Yeah, so Clem Snide, I uh, I wrote all the songs in Clem Snide. The dark red shadows deep beneath your skin Tonight I feel like Elvis longing for his long Like a pigeon choking on a diamond ring Tonight I feel like Elvis longing for his long lost twin I don't know if I was necessarily the leader of Clem Snide back when we first started It was more of a, yeah, it was more of a group and, you know but, uh, but yeah, but I wrote the songs. Barzillet was born in Israel, spending his earliest years there, but would eventually move with his family to Teaneck, New Jersey, where he would spend the majority of his youth. Yeah, I was born in uh, Israel, um, just a stone's throw from Nazareth. I'm from a kibbutz originally, like a little commune, like a Zionist sort of commune. My grandparents were Poles, and they... They uh, escaped to Israel during the uh, the war. I'm like the first American in my family. 
But yeah, I grew up in Jersey, suburbs, you know, all the Israelis tend to end up uh, northern Jersey. Your favorite music is definitely uh, the context of a lot of it does kind of happen there in, in New Jersey. While in high school, Barzilay begins playing guitar, which in turn would lead to an interest in songwriting. I loved playing guitar, and that's all I did in high school. I, I tried to be like Eddie Van Halen. Uh, very wanky. I wanked hard in high school. I studied uh, with this jazz, this really good jazz guitarist. And kind of was thinking I'd be like a jazz guitarist. I wasn't even sure what I was doing. But then uh, but then towards the end of high school, yeah, I got more into like, I don't even know what to call it anymore, alternative music. And then uh, and I moved to Boston to go to Berkeley College of Music to study jazz. But as soon as I got there, I realized that I really didn't want to do that. I dropped out and yeah, and I shaved my head and I started listening to like punk rock music and trying to be like a punk rocker. I didn't really like that too much either. And I started trying to write songs like in the early 90s and I stopped playing guitar and like I sold my electric guitar and I bought like an acoustic, you know, and started listening to like Neil Young more and uh, Hank Williams. I love I love old country music. Yeah, like Hank Williams, especially I I listen to a lot. And yeah, so I'd say like around 20, 21, I started I started trying to write songs. At some point, I just felt like I like the words, like trying to do something interesting with, with the words and the lyrics. You know, there was like a lot of room to move, like with the words, you know, been playing guitar. So I hadn't thought, thought of myself as like a singer and I never took any like singing lessons. And like the way that I've always approached it has always been like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? Like I've always gone into it with like a kind of naive you know, I'm saying it like as if it's like I'm proud of it. But at the same time, like I really I didn't know what I'm doing. You know, so I never I never tried to sing. Uh, and then uh, I don't know, I just started trying to write songs on an acoustic guitar. That was just something I could always just do, you know, with myself. Like I didn't depend on anybody. I didn't need to go somewhere to do it. I didn't need any money to do it. You know, I just could sit there in my room with my guitar and my little boom box and, and work on songs. So I've just been doing that since, yeah, since uh, like 1990. So. It is in Boston that the earliest incarnation of Clem Snide begins, a band very different in sound from the one that would eventually go on to record your favorite music. When I dropped out of Berkeley, I hooked up with this older guy who was kind of a bit of a scenester, and he, you know, me and him, he like somehow got me to join his band, even though he was a complete hack. Like he couldn't even play. It was terrible, but you know, and I was really young, you know, I was 19, I had no idea, so he kind of took advantage of me. But we, uh, you know, we exploited each other, and through that experience, I met, I met some other musicians, I met this drummer, Eric Paul, yeah, just a bunch of people that knew other people. Yeah, we, it was like we were this big group of people, and a bunch of different bands, and then eventually all the other bands kind of fell apart, and, and Clemson was like the only one left standing. We got pretty popular in New York, like in the early, ni- I'm sorry, in Boston, as like a screaming kind of noisy, not funk. I wouldn't say we were funk, but it was noisy and, and, and there, were some, there were some funky grooves. We always had like there was always like this 
undercurrent of like not jazziness, but you know, like the people in Clemside were were like pretty serious musicians. You know, like Jason was was pretty serious, and we had this guy Bill for a while. I mean, yeah, and Eric was like had studied. It was thrilling. Like we would get together, and it was just like oh, it was like so much energy and like angst. I mean, I was a very miserable uh, young person. You know, I had a lot of issues and a lot of just a lot of a lot of anxiety and depression and and despair. Uh, so, I mean, I always kind of worked worked through it with the music, and so yeah, it was like a kind of group therapy, and we'd get together and we'd just make this like noise and felt so good. But we never bothered, you know, we'd never play the same song like twice uh, or, or the same way twice. You know, it was it was always. But very noisy, not not necessarily like complicated, just you know, droney kind of sonic youth mm-hmm. type stuff. And then, but then, sort of, and that was Clemside, and then that, and then that sort of fell apart, and everybody scattered a bit, and a couple of us moved to New York. Barzelay relocates to New York. It is there that Clemside begins to develop the sound commonly associated with their early records. Like I moved to New York, and then Jason we played bass in the original Clemson, Jason Glasser. So me and him kind of moved to New York around the same time, and we we lived together for a while. We almost went sort of the, the extreme opposite of what we were in Boston, which was so fast and noisy. We were listening to, like, Jimmy Scott, Bill Withers, like a lot of uh, Chet Baker, you know? Is your mouth a little weak When you are to speak are you smart like we got really into like slow whatever this is like eventually i guess it, there was like movement called slow core so it's not like we invented the idea but but we were into the into the idea for sure of of, of doing really quiet really slow and leaving like a lot of room for the words you know that was that was like a cool thing to do back then the first three clemson records uh, like you were a diamond, your favorite music and the ghost of fashion. I'd say very much came out of the collaboration that me and Jason had cultivated living together in New York back then. Yeah, like all those crazy sounds on your favorite music. That was all him. Like he was getting into like sampling, but like before it was, I mean, people had already been sampling, obviously, but, you know, like he was, yeah, he was like, he was more of a, he was going to art school. He was bringing a much more like art kind of sonic, uh, collage sort of sound design you know experimental he used a lot of tape loops and mm-hmm. things like that and so yeah so he so me and him were starting to kind of put together something combining the stuff he was working on and, and my and my songs in december of 1998 Clem released their debut record you were a diamond side note you were a diamond is probably one of my favorite album titles recorded in uh, Brooklyn there well I was I was really into that show <laughs> Taxi Cab Confessions when it first came out and uh, and one of them they picked up this crazy this crazy sort of semi-homeless guy and 
and yeah, he just he told some story about I can't remember the exact story, but you know, he had had this like this young woman he met, and he was it was like the most heartbreaking story. Basically, he you know his life was he had a really hard life, and they'd finally met this like young beautiful girl, and they married her, and then he was like happy for the first time in his life, and then she got cancer and died or some terrible tragedy and they was, it was so distraught that he basically made him homeless like he, he just lost his shit completely as a result and then at one point when he's telling the guy the story he sort of turns and it's like he's talking to her you know and he was like you know you were a diamond inside and out and yeah i thought you were a diamond i love that it's in the past tense you know it's like it's not you are a diamond it's like you were a diamond so it makes it so heartbreaking so when we made you were a diamond we really I had no idea what we were doing. Like making a record is like hard and you got to know, you know, you got to have some good mics. You got to know, you got to know what you're doing. And the guy that recorded us was also kind of, you know, he kind of knew what he was doing, but he'd set up this new studio, but we were more, even not so much the we didn't know what we were doing. We couldn't even really play our instruments very well. We were at that time. It was, we had an upright bass, a cello, and I played like a, like a, like a hollow body, you know, kind of guitar. Um, and we would go, we would go to gigs on the subway. We would just bring like our, you know, remember taking the subway to like downtown, go play gigs. But, uh, so you were a diamond was a very much a learning experience for everybody. And, uh, you know, just trying to get that cello to sound like in tune. And, and I didn't, you know, just singing, like singing into a mic with headphones was kind of new to me too. You know, you really kind of hear your voice for the first time. I mean, people love that record, but when I hear it, I, I, it's painful to listen to because I can just hear my my not knowing how to do shit on it. So I don't particularly <laughs> like it. But it was wonderful. Oh, when I made You Were a Diamond, I should also add, so I was working at the Guggenheim and I used my, I had a week's vacation. I used my week's vacation to go make the record. And uh, and I just remember being in the studio and just uh, and just loving it so much. And, you know, it was one of those moments when, you know, I was like in my mid twenties, just being like, "This is what I want to do." You know, I just want to make records. Like making records is great. After releasing "You Were a Diamond," the band is brought to the attention of a very important as well as legendary figure in the music industry. So we made "You Were a Diamond," which had that Hank Williams uh, cover on it, "Lost on the River." I'm lost on the river. I started there there wasn't such a thing as Americana that, that word did not ex- I mean it existed in some other whatever like for you know if people went like antiquing and bought an old flag or something that's Americana but like to describe a, a genre of music I'm pretty sure it didn't even exist back then called alt country we got sort of swept up in that moment a little bit and another person who was really into some old classic country was Seymour Stein the guy you know legendary uh uh, industry record uh, executive Seymour Stein. So Seymour Stein actually signed us be- largely because of that Hank Williams cover 
And we had this little eager beaver manager who had kind of ingratiated himself to Seymour's son before his incompetence was, was revealed. But, but Seymour's son, I love Seymour's son. And he was a real champion of the band, you know, briefly. Because right when we signed, uh, there was all kinds of turmoil within the label and he was kind of getting phased out and all these new people came in. It felt, uh, no, I felt great, you know? And I, I felt like also being in New York, you know, I was working as a tour guide at the time, like on those double-decker buses. And I'd been, you know, kind of a lost soul. And so I moved to New York and I, and I felt like, oh, I'm a New Yorker, you know? And I was real proud to, to be a New Yorker and to tell people all about New York as a tour guide. And then to go and get signed by this, you know, this old, old Jewish guy from Brooklyn and, and to be on Sire. Yeah, I felt there was, you know, we were a New York band. We were, you know, we were playing down, playing some cool clubs down the Lower East Side. And you know, it felt great. That's, I'd say it was like a high point of my, of my life, of my life at that time for me. It was, you know, when we got signed. But, you know, there's always, uh, there's always a but. That's at least for me in this business. Every time something good comes, uh, soon thereafter, something very, very painful is you know a, a painful price is like exacted for for whatever rock and roll glory the, the amount of money we got to make your favorite music still the biggest budget i've ever in my you know whatever 20 years of doing this shit like i mean we had a we had a hundred thousand dollars they gave us a hundred grand to make a record think about that that's unbelievable <laughs> like and and the funny thing is the guy that got us the deal the lawyer that we had at the time was apologizing because he was, oh, if this was like a year or two ago, I'd have gotten you 500. This, like, this was right at the tail end of, of the record business as it, as it had been. You know, like we just got in like at the last, you know, right as there was kind of the party was over, but there was, you could still get in, even though they're sort of putting chairs up on the tables, whatever, sweeping up. But so we, we squeaked in. So they, so we made, uh, so yeah, we had 100 grand. We had six weeks to make that record. Six weeks. I, I mean, it blows my mind to look back at it now because, I, I mean, ever since I've had maybe two weeks, if I'm lucky, mm-hmm. make a record. Six weeks, two, two weeks just for tracking. And we went, uh, we went upstate. We went to uh, Bearsville, like right near Woodstock. Uh, and we were in the Todd Rundgren room, like the room that he built for, for like his videos. I don't know, I'm not sure what uh, that's all about, but Todd's video production. <laughs> The songs that Barzillet would write for the band's major label debut were inspired by the circumstances of his initial move to New York. I moved to New York with this girlfriend from Boston. And when we got to New York, I realized, I mean, I kind of knew it before we moved in together, but I was too nice to say anything. I didn't really want to want to live with this girl anymore. And so I, so I broke up with her, you know, it was very hard. Kind of gave up my apartment and moved back in to my parents' house. My parents, you know, were living in, in Jersey there, just on the other side of the George Washington Bridge. So I was just very, uh, you know, just lost, very much lost in life. I'd take the bus at the Port Authority there in Times Square and ride that bus all the way back to my parents' house. It took like an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, you know, each way. So I would, uh, I would, I would just write. Like I wrote a bunch of the songs that ended up on your favorite music on those, on those long bus rides from Port Authority to Teaneck, New Jersey. You know, like I love the unknown, like that song was written. I remember specifically like that song came to me all at once, right. As I was waiting for the bus at the, at the Port Authority, just sitting there, I remember I scribbled it, didn't have, didn't have a guitar and I just wrote all the words to it. Like 
right there. That one just waiting for the bus all at once. The band brings in Martin Brombach, who they had previously worked with on You Were a Diamond, to produce the record. So I should give Marty Brumbach some credit. Marty, we knew Marty through our manager at the time. Marty actually works with Hal Wilner still. Hal Wilner's like engineers. Works at SNL, does like the sound for SNL there. But Marty came in when we were making You Were a Diamond. We kind of got a bit lost, you know, with the production and the mixes were every kind of got out of control. So Marty came in and sort of tightened everything up for us and he's good he's like, like a kind of a hardcore dude you know not afraid to raise his voice <laughs> and uh yeah and he sort of whipped it into shape so when it came time to make your favorite music we it made sense to, to get marty to be the producer and uh yeah so we just kind of followed his lead uh yes yeah, so we tracked at bearsville in the big room there and uh and then we did the rest of it at looking glass which his wife manages philip glass so we got to use philip that's philip glass studio there and it's Soho. Various musicians were brought in during the recording process to fill out the sound, but it is in the beginning of basic tracking at Bearsville that the band has an important realization. Of all the records we've made, I'd probably have the most stories around your favorite music. It's like the most like momentous kind of, uh, you know, it was like our first real record that we were making for like a big label signed by Seymour Stein. We had a hundred grand. Uh, it, was, it was thrilling. Like, we weren't really ready, you know? Like, when we got into track, we realized that our drummer actually couldn't play the drums. Like, the producer, Marty, right, was was like, you know, hit it, hit that drum. I got to, you know, I got to get a signal. And he would hit it so gently because he couldn't really play. He just sort of, he just used brushes and just sort of swished around. And we were like a really quiet, like, acoustic band. So he kind of got away with it. But in the studio, it didn't work. Like, the guy that plays on the record, Brad actually isn't the guy on the cover <laughs> that's like we replaced brad sort of right when we were finishing the record so i know i'm trying to be mean to brad you know he was cool he knew we couldn't really play it was all he was more of a hobbyist uh and we just you know we had him in there and we we practiced at that time we were all living in queens in this uh in this crappy little apartment it was like an office that all lived there so we rehearsed in our apartment so we played really quiet like, that's the thing is when you're, like, recording, like, when you finally go into a proper studio, you know, you can't hide in the studio. Like, you can hide playing live, and you can hide when you're just sort of jamming, whatever, but you can't hide in the studio. So Brad couldn't hide in the studio. It was revealed. And we were, you know, we were, we were, we were, we tracked for two weeks, right? We had two weeks to track at Bearsville, and by the last couple of days, we had we ran out of songs. We had no more songs. <laughs> like I remember those last couple of days, Marty's like, "You got anything we can?" Rec-? I'm like, "Yeah, that's it, man. We've, we've recorded every song we know. These ten songs are the only song." A lot of the sounds on that record were made by by Jason. You know, he he sampled when we were living in uh, we were living together in Queens. You'd go to the Lincoln Center had a they don't have it anymore. It's unfortunate, but they had a like a record library. You could go to Lincoln Center and they had just tons and tons of these just weird, obscure, you know, like field recordings and folkways. And so he would go every, every, uh, every week he'd come home with a big stack of weird records and we would just sit around and listen to these records. And he just sent, he would just sample little, little snippets here and there. And we had two weeks to do the basics. And then we had two weeks just to do overdubs. So that's when Jason came in with, with his big clunky, you know, sampler and had already worked out like a bunch of different textures and sounds. 
each each moment was like, oh, what would sound cool here? You know, I mean, Jason could barely play the cello. He wasn't a cello player. So instead, he just sampled himself. You know, he was, yeah, it was very much like a, more, a much more artistic way to approach it, I suppose, less so than just like a, like a musician. And we brought music, we brought like the, the violin on that record is uh, Mary Rowell. She was like a, you know, Cronus Quartet kind of, kind of just phenomenal violin player. Could just pull like the most sexy, beautiful sounds out of that thing. So we had her come in and then we, you know, we brought in some like ace professionals to, like we brought in this keyboard player and he, like we weren't necessarily able to really make that all that music ourselves. Like we had to have some help. But in the end, they made a record. favorite music opens with Dairy Queen. It accomplishes what a great opening song is capable of. It sets the tone of the record and introduces or reintroduces the artist to the listener. And Dairy Queen is a great introduction to this band, specifically to the distinct voice of Barzillet, both as a vocalist and a lyricist. Side note, Dairy Queen is also in the canon of pop songs that include lines about ginger ale, which also included in this illustrious list are Pavement's Motion Suggests, The Walkman's Woe Is Me, and Martha and the Vandellas' We Got Honey Love. Yeah, Dairy Queens, that's an interesting story. So when I was a kid, I uh, I ran away a lot, you know? I, I uh, like I cut school. I, I was sort of traumatized, I think, by living on a kibbutz until I was six, and then my parents just moved to like suburban New Jersey. So I was always trying to like run away. So one of my earliest memories was living in Jersey there in Pagoda, New Jersey. It was kind of like a white trashy old town. And uh, and I used to just wander down to the Dairy Queen. You know, I was like eight. This is back when like, back in the 70s, <laughs> like kids just wandered around, right? It seems so inconceivable now, but 
But yeah, so I'm like eight years old and I was wandering around and I go down to the Dairy Queen and I have a very vivid memory of some guy trying to get me in his car. You know, some guy pulled up to me, like opened the passenger side door and was like, hey, you know, I'm a friend of your mom's. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was, and he kind of drove, you know, I was like, I don't know. I was confused and he kept like, no, no, come on. And I, whatever, I had the good sense not to get in the car. I remember that moment that I kind of reflected on it. And I don't know, so the Dairy Queen is kind of about, like I pictured myself getting into the car and then just sitting there and like looking out the window as the guy was just driving to wherever, wherever he was planning to go. I mean, yeah, that's just context for me. It's, it's just that moment, but whatever. Not, it's not like specifically about, about anything other than just sort of imagining that, that moment. But I don't have any specific, I don't have specific memories about recording that song. I mean, it's so long ago now. It's, it's like recording, you know, recording is very, it's just very methodical. And did it live as much, you know, we tried to get like guitar, bass and drums live. Those first few records were, were definitely kind of painful because we didn't, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing. And, you know, like the musicianship was, you know, we'd have to we'd have to run things a bunch of times. You know, things sounded a little out of tune. Like, yeah, we were ham-fisted musicians. Following Dairy Queen is the country-tinged anti-love song, Exercise. Yeah, like, I'm not a very romantic person. Like, I've always had a kind of, you know, like a, like, like Madame Bovary. Like, I got really into Flaubert for a while. I don't know why exactly. I didn't go to college, so I would just pick books randomly when I was, when I worked at the Guggenheim. So I got into Flaubert for a while, and I read Madame Bovary. And I'm not very romantic. I like when, when romance is dispelled. You know, I enjoy that moment. So I think that's what exercise is kind of, you know, your heart's a muscle. And that's, I was trying to make some kind of anti-romantic statement. But like still, like you can still be, like you can love someone, but not in a romantic, like what is love without being romantic? But so, yeah, so I think when I, I think that's what that song's about. But I'm not sure. It's funny, like we had this upright bass player, but he couldn't play country bass. Like he was a jazz guy. So he just couldn't, like he just couldn't get that. I mean, you could kind, of, you know, you kind of do it, but he couldn't get that like, doom, doom, boom, you know, like that slap, that sort of smack pop that you have to get on your upright. Wing. So even like, yeah, even that one, which was that's basically the feel, we're just trying to get there. We were, uh, yeah, we were definitely like not country players at all, and just very much like faking our way through it.
title track has a sort of walk on the wild side vibe to it but for me it's also reminiscent of Jonathan Richmond not necessarily in sound though there is a minimalist element to it but more so in its ability to evoke similar feelings I have when listening to Richmond's music specifically his song that summer feeling which is about our tendency to look back fondly on the past and long for our childhood even though much of it was painful. This childhood melancholy is evoked through the sadness of both music and lyrics juxtaposed with the sample of children laughing. When we were overdubbing on that on that song, I didn't want anything on there because like Marty and Jason were, like J- Jason had put together those little samples and stuff. And there's a lot of like really, really subtle sounds there that we, might not necessarily even notice it's all just about these subtle text and uh and i remember getting into kind of a shouting match with marty i was like you don't understand this song has to be like has to, have, has to be completely minimal like just the drums and the vocal you know i don't even remember what i was going on about and uh and then but then he was like well no but you can't you have to define the space you have to build some walls around the space or else there is no space just empty it's nothing you know I, don't know, I just remember having kind of an epiphany there. He's like, oh, he's right. You have to define the space with objects. But yeah, so I think, I think yeah, I think your favorite music, I was, I was imagining it being, yeah, even more, like, just minimal, just nothing. But that one, your favorite music, I think, came to be in the studio. Like, I don't think we had, we had ever even really played it. It was created in the studio. Brad, the drummer, was he came up with that like shuffle kind of beat. But yeah, that, that one definitely came together in the studio. I mean, I give Jason, you know, uh, I wish, I mean, I, you know, Jason, I don't know, go off on a tangent, but he, you know, he right around that time, right after Ghost of Fashion, he, he got his French girlfriend pregnant and, and had to move to France and basically left the band. But but I, I begged him to stay. I mean, so so much of what made those early Clemson records special, I'd say, was Jason and, and all those little sounds he was collecting. He had a real great sense for, yeah, just a subtle kind of putting putting that sample of the, the little boy laughing like that. Mm-hmm. That just makes that song, I'm sure. The musically lush African friend is Barzelay's ode to self-acceptance. Your beautiful African friend Next to him I look so white so why that you turn away and wanted me out 
So when I was working as a tour guide, I worked for this company, New York Apple Tours, and all the ticket sellers were African dudes. You know, they, they the company was really uh, kind of screwed up, and they and they would take these African, you know, these like immigrants who didn't really barely spoke English, and they would rip off the people that didn't speak English very well. But the head ticket seller, this guy CC, that was kind of my my buddy there, and I'd hang out with him sometimes. And he was like, he was the African friend that I had in my mind when I wrote it. And yeah, I was just, I mean, it's 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 a little bit of a dig. Yeah, just a little bit of a dig at the way like suburban white people kind of fetishize exotic things uh, or people, you know, in that way of trying to seem more, yeah, more exotic. And, and so, yeah, so I just put it in the context of like, of like a relationship with a, with a girl just kind of infatuated with this exotic African friend and, and this boring suburban uh, white boyfriend is, is pleading with her to just uh, let it go and just accept who you are. You know, it, uh, yeah, so I was kind of playing around with, with that idea. Accept yourself as a, as a boring white person. I guess. In contrast to the lush orchestrations of African friend is the sparseness of the song Bread. example of a certain type of song present throughout Barzillay's catalog. He really has a gift for creating these beautiful and intimate little portraits of everyday life. Bread is about a couple and it gives us glimpses into the tiny moments of their life together with specific images of unwashed dishes, lighting cigarettes with the stove, and the smell of bread on pillows. I think back then when I was writing songs I had this sort of parallel universe couple I would sort of see in my mind that was me, but it wasn't me. It's hard to explain. But I'd see, yeah, I'd see vignettes. I'd just see, it was like a movie kind of running running through my mind, but not, not a movie and more like a, like a Terrence Malick movie or something. Yeah, I'd see like these little scenes and, and vignettes. And some would just be more like illuminated and then I would just, I would just sort of write down, I would just try to get like the, just the, I don't know, man, it's hard to put into words. I think like trying to find some sort of transcendent, like something, some kind of, like I, at that time I, I felt like my, my life, you know, like my, my soul was wrapped in a wet blanket. <laughs> That's what it felt like. I just, I was, I was very depressive and all my girlfriends were 
you know, the girls I got involved with were always very depressed. You know, everybody was like fine, trying to find the right fucking antidepressant that didn't make it too constipated. You know, these were the conversations we're having. I'm always, I'm a bit of a recluse. Like, I don't like to leave my house. Just trying to weave together some some kind of like misanthropic, depressive, yet find some kind of sweet or tender or even romantic, like something in in the middle of that. You know, trying to pull some kind of sparks out of just, you know, yeah, like like being at home and and having some sad party. I love the idea of like I love ruining parties. You know, like I I hate partying when people would get all excited. Like I just. Part of me just wants to ruin their fun. I'm a real, I'm a real downer. <laughs> I don't know, you know, like I was very, that's how my bitterness manifested itself. So like 1989 is kind of about that too. Like at that time I was, you know, like I can't drink and I had all kinds of like my stomach always hurt. And, you know, I was always like, and it, I kind of resented people who I could actually enjoy themselves. Maybe that's what it was. Find my way into a space, even though I was depressed and my stomach hurt. Like maybe there is some kind of something, you know, some kind of magic in there that we can tease out. I think that's what bread is about, making that that moment alive. I would count that as one of my top three, like magical studio moments was the performance of that song. Because that song is hard as fuck to play. And especially on the guitar that I was using at the time, which was such a crappy old acoustic. And Marty... God bless Marty came up with the idea to like, I think he, he, he did something to put like a mic in the guitar or something. Somehow he got it to sound really cool. Yeah. Just to get it sounded really good. And, uh, and I played it through, you know, <laughs> like start to, like it was hard to just play that song through all the way, you know, cause it's really repetitive and slow and it's, uh, and the chords are kind of funky on it. Uh, after I played that song, when we, when we tracked it, yeah, I remember everybody just being like, "Holy shit!" Like that was kind of one of the one of my kind of magical moments in the studio, where I felt like we definitely got something special. Yeah, and I'm proud of that of that moment. And I I never play it live because like I I can't ever do it as good as that. I feel like and people are always like, "Oh, why don't you ever play bread?" I got this one guy in Wisconsin who's been begging me to play bread for years. Like he'll email me, he'll come to a show, he'll I beg for me to, and I'm like, ah, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Like I, I can refuse to ever try and play it. I've tried, I've tried playing it again. I can play it, but I don't know. Like that song doesn't really work. Like it only works as that moment. That's why I feel like. She asked him, why can we not be together? Why is it we have to part? Why do you leave with a stranger when I am revealing my heart? Because I love the unknown, I love the unknown, he said. I Love the Unknown is in a way Barzillet's celebration of uncertainty and a rejection of the mundanities of everyday life. Well, you know, I think when you live so close to New York City, you know, there's always, like New York City kind of looms, you know, off in the, on the horizon there. And it's hard to not sort of be, to have this sense that there's like, oh, there's, 
like you're living in Jersey and there's nothing going on, but then just over there, there's like this kind of magical place. So you, it's a universal feeling, obviously, but like in that, in the context of, of, of that, you know, area, like I, I was breaking up with that girl that I moved to New York with. And, I mean, that song is very much about, about that moment when I was, when I was breaking up with her, you know, trying to be like, well, it's not you necessarily. It's, it's just, it's me. I love the unknown. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to know. Like the idea of getting married and just knowing how the rest of my life was going to unfold at that moment was like unbearable to me. When I was younger, like when I was in high school, my plan was to die. Like not, I wasn't necessarily suicidal, but I was like, I'll probably be dead by the time I was I was totally had some goofy, you know, like James Dean fantasies or, or some or something, you know, I, I didn't, I, I just, I didn't do good. In, I didn't do good in high school. I didn't think I was very smart. I, you know, I just, I was confused. I was going to move back to Israel. Like being from Israel was always kind of fucked with my, with my sense of self and my identity and like what I was supposed to do for a long time. I really, I thought I'd move back to the kibbutz. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll just go live on the kibbutz. I'll pick bananas and that'll be an easy life. You know, I didn't, but I didn't really want to do that. So I, yeah, I was just lost, you know, I didn't, and my dad's a pathological liar. So I had a lot of things, uh, you know, I just didn't know. <laughs> so yeah, it's like you don't know. You have to. You have to. Uh, yeah, you have to kind of make friends with the unknown. Tonight, we're gonna party like it's 1989. Tonight, 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 and I guess. It's not that funny, but I'll say it anyway. All right, all right, all right. Nineteen eighty nine follows. I love the unknown. Like many of the songs on this record, what makes this track special? are the subtle textures Jason Glasser brings to its sonic landscape. Side note, years later, this song would unfortunately not be the payday Barzillet had hoped for. And Taylor Swift stole that line from me, by the way, too. She had it copyrighted. Tonight, we're going to we're gonna party like it's 1989. She was born in 1989. I had no, uh, no legal recourse. I, I looked into it, believe me. <laughs> there was a moment there. I was like, oh, I'm going to make so much money because... She copyrighted. She's gonna have to pay me. Woo! But apparently, I had some lawyer look into it, but not to be. Um, I mean, I liked I liked the idea of having a song that was about a bad joke. I like to put bad jokes in in song. Like when you make a bad joke on purpose, you know, that's it's like you're trying to lighten the mood, but then there's also maybe a little resentment in there. It's it's a lot of complex, you know, uh, psychological and emotional things happening when you make a bad joke. <laughs> I don't know. So that's what, uh, yeah, that's what that song is, is about, mostly. The atmosphere of these songs is, is uh, or the subtext, is comes from, yeah, the fact that I was kind of breaking up with, with my girlfriend and, and sort of in that kind of in-between state. No 
Loneliness finds her own way is Clem Snide's version of the classic pop song structure of quiet verse, loud chorus. But instead of guitars, the chorus is lifted by Jason Glasser's string work. That I've just that just came to me all at once when I was when I was working at the Guggenheim down in the stock room, and yeah, I just I just that line popped into my head. I think I'm singing that one more to myself. I love the idea of loneliness being like a like an embodied person that's lonely, <laughs> you know, but 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 somehow is knows like knows her knows her purpose. It's it's yeah, it's basically like you're. Like everybody's, you know, we were born alone and we die alone. So you're alone. Like that's 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 the the sort of default position of being in in that in one sense. So you don't have to seek it out. You know what I'm saying? Like, which is probably what I was doing because I I tend to pull away. As we near the end of your favorite music, we get the beautiful "Sweet Mother Russia," which is my favorite song on this record. I don't know what else to say about it other than. I really love this song, and prior to hearing these lyrics, I did not know that sharks never sleep. And how's my sweet mother Russia dissolving? I take it like sugar. An apple juice swallowed. And I'm learning your language And I promise I'll write But of weather, what is there to speak of? clouds were all cotton and my mouth got so dry from those little red pills that you gave me with your pretty face lost in a sea of bad I've had more than a couple people tell me that that's like one of their favorites which is I don't know why it's, I never, I never feel so removed from that song at this point. But yeah, that song's got some good lines on it. That one I remember writing on on the subway when I we were living in living in Queens at the time. I guess so. Anyway, yeah, I was riding the subway and I and I just saw this Russian immigrant. You know, was was out in Queens there, Brooklyn somewhere. And yeah, I don't know. I just I had one of those moments. Like I have certain moments where I can kind of see through someone else's eyes. So I I just try to put myself in and just just I don't know. It's hard. It sounds pretentious, but just kind of feel 
you know, just if you, if you just open yourself, like if you can forget yourself enough, you can, you know, you can really kind of feel what another person is feeling. I mean, I think that was the initial motivation behind it or the inspiration. I was on the subway and yeah, I was sitting across from some like a young mother, like a young recent, you know, uh, arrival here from Russia or Eastern Europe or something. And, uh, and she had, yeah, she had like a bad, bad haircut. Love to do with your pretty face lost in a sea of bad haircuts. I love the idea of like a beautiful, like you see this in Europe sometimes where like a, you'll, you'll see like a beautiful woman, but she lives some, some tiny little village in the middle of nowhere or whatever. So like she doesn't know that she's beautiful. There's something, something very appealing. You don't see that much in America like where people, you know, kind of size up their, their physical attributes very quickly, but, so I don't know. There's part of that. The romance of it, I think, is is somewhat informed by by that. I've, my my grandparents are from Poland. Yes, you know, so I've always had a slight kind of Eastern European uh, affinity in my. So I was just trying to sort of tenderly express, you know, yeah, write a song for that uh, young Russian immigrant mother. That that's one where I, yeah, I came up with some good lines on that one. Looking, you know, running it through my mind right now. I think, you know, I was trying to. I was just trying to write. Yeah, I was trying to just write interesting words. So that's, that's what I came up with. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's like, you know, you're always, it's weird to talk about because you're always just a vessel for it. I wouldn't die for your sins. Because what if I live? is all that we have in the end But I wouldn't die for your sins And I love you with all that I can Messiah Complex Blues musically is one of the more upbeat numbers of your favorite music. With its lively instrumentation and sing-along chorus, it has a celebratory feel and is the only song on the record that has what one might assume to be a noisy guitar solo. Yeah, wow, there's so, so many good songs on this record. I hadn't even thought. <laughs> Side Complex Blues, yeah, that's, uh, that's a distorted cello. It's a cello through a rat pedal. Two rat pedals. I was very, very anti-guitar solo. Another thing that's always just been an issue that that I think about or have thought about, like Christianity, I was kind of intrigued by Christianity and and was just so kind of mystified by it. You know, you hear that Jesus died for your sins, and I asked, what does that mean? Like, I never, still not entirely sure what that means. But, But yeah, but I just thought, that's what really separates the men from the boys if you're an aspiring messiah. 
you have to die for for other people's sins. And and I and I said, well, I would never do that. It's like an admission of of your own sort of flawed humanity in in a way. Like sometimes it's it's fun to take such a, a profound statement like Jesus died for your sins, and just say, well, I wouldn't die for your sins. You know, just completely like invert it and just see what happens. So I think that's what I was trying to do. I think, yeah, because I was raised, like my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Like they weren't in concentration camps, but they, they left behind like they're, you know, they, they were young and they got out of there and they made it to Israel and they, you know, they like never saw their friends and family again. So they had tremendous survivor's guilt but one of the ways that they dealt with that is to become like very like visceral uh, atheists, not like intellectual atheists, like like angry at God, like an atheist, not just because, you know, like Sam Harris, or whatever, like an atheist that like rejects God. So. So that's kind of how I was raised <laughs> like my my parents. I mean, my parents were just sort of indifferent towards it, but but there was like this this really dark kind of atheism that like runs through my, just my experience of you know, culture or whatever. And that's how I was brought up. I think part of my mission, artistic or whatever, spiritual mission is to try and heal that, that what my grand, that's why, I, I mean, it sounds, again, I don't even like to say these things out loud, try and just and reconcile because they never did, you know, they never talked about it. It was just never talked about. And that's that was my and both my parents were I think kind of troubled in their own ways, largely because of that because it was like this black hole kind of at the at the center of it all that everyone just sort of danced around. So I think I think I just I felt like I had to just dive into that black hole, kind of once and for all, like I had no choice. I've, I'm always trying to just articulate my own, or, or just understand my own my own faith or lack thereof or whatever. The band ends your favorite music with an achingly beautiful, slowed-down version of the Richie Valens hit, Donna. Richie Valens. I was always had a great love. So I was just playing his songs. I loved 50s, like that early rock and roll. I love that period. Donna was also another, I'd say, magical moment in the studio where we did like that's all live vocals, guitar, bass, drums. And then Jason added the, you know, that weird little clarinet sound. Yeah, that was just one of his little sounds that he put together. Couldn't even tell you where he got it. I had a girl 
For the photograph that would become the album cover for your favorite music, Barzillet chose a familiar setting that was meaningful during the process of writing the record. The band members, each in powder blue tuxedos, stand side by side, knee deep in and surrounded by a body of water with patches of land in the distance. And the cover of us in our tuxes there standing in, in that water, that's, that's right off of the Jersey Turnpike there. You know, that's what I saw. That was like the sort of the landscape. And I love that landscape of, you know, it's this weird kind of in-between land, the estuaries there, the meadowlands where you know, it's like sandwiched between Manhattan and, and Newark like the two most kind of industrial and you know built up kind of landscapes there's just these quiet little estuaries i don't know it's something about that that uh you know that sort of that space between that's how i felt i guess I was like in a space between sire releases your favorite music on may 2nd 2000 unlike the experience of making the record both the wait between the album's completion and release and subsequent aftermath were not a pleasurable experience for Barzillet and the band. Record, it's time here in this world has been difficult. So we handed it in. Um, right at that time, all these new people came in, and there was all kinds of mergers were going on. And the new people that came in were not at all uh, into Clem Snot. <laughs> Seymour, like Seymour Stein, I think, was was, was champion, uh, you know, was, was pulling for us. But these new people were not. And right when we turned it in, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we got all these new people coming in. So the, the release schedules is, is kind of in disarray. So, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, a few months. I mean, it always, you know, labels always want like a three or four months at least to, to set to set up a record. Anyway, so they kept telling us that for like a year, like a whole year went by. And it was a very shitty year for me. I remember being really you know, feeling like, oh, we made it, we made this great record, we feel so proud of it, and, and now the label's just sitting on it. So then finally, these new people are like, well, we need a single, you know, and they were, and they were like, oh, that, I love the Unknown song. Like, that that might be, that might be a good single. Uh, but they're like, but it needs to be remixed. You know, I remember sitting down with, with the guy at the label and him telling me that it sounds, it's like, it sounds way too live. <laughs> he was saying, he was like, they're never going to play it on the radio, it sounds too live. And I was like, what do you mean? It's a good thing. And so we reluctantly agreed to let them remix it. They spent like 15 grand. They hired these two guys to like remix, you know, remix it. And they just, so these two guys took, took the tracks and, and, uh, and just added like a, a sugar Ray kind of beat underneath it. It made it sound more like sugar Ray basically. And then, and then after all that, like after all, like, you know, the back and forth and all the drama and the money spent, the label was like, eh, nah, we still don't hear a single. <laughs> Even after they got the Sugar Ray remix treatment, uh, they still didn't want to put it on. And then they they finally did release it, like reluctantly, without much fanfare. I remember there's one funny story. So we had, so Sire had their in-house PR person, this woman whose name I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, so all right, one of the one of the very first uh, Clem Snide super fans, God bless him, was a uh, Stephen Thompson. Stephen Thompson started the Tiny Desk concert and, and originally was started the AV Club uh, for the for the Onion. 
So this is way, yeah, so this is way back in like the late 90s. Stephen Thompson uh, discovered your favorite music and, and became a huge fan. So he was like, oh, it's just like happened upon this record. I love this record. Anyway, so he called Sire to to talk to the PR person and, and you know, and see if he could do something with the record. And uh, anyway, so he told me this story years later. So he calls her up and he's like, hey, you know, I'm, I love that Clem Side record. And she went, Really? <laughs> that's how our PR person uh, responded to his. really you love that record oh, weird uh, anyway so that's where we were at with Sire so they put the record out and uh, I don't even remember what happened nothing happened and then yeah and then we were just we were just begging them to, to let us go and then that took another several months and then finally they they let us go and because they were contractually obligated for another record, you know, we had like a two record firm kind of deal. Instead of giving us money for the next record, they just let us keep your favorite music. So, so we just got it. Yeah. Around that time we, we, we signed with spin art and then we were, we we're doing the ghost. Of, like, I think your favorite music, even though it came out before the ghost of fashion, it was released again after the ghost of fashion chronology gets a little confusing. There. So we were able to, to get out of our, our situation with sire and, uh, and yeah, and that's been art we released it. Even though the situation following the release of your favorite music was less than ideal for the band, it's still the record that Klimstein wanted to make. And because of that, Barzillet's general feelings towards that period are still mostly positive. I look back at that time, um, yeah, no, very fondly. I think it was definitely like a high point, kind of creative, artistic a high point for me and yeah very much like the culmination of just like stuff that i was working on or just thinking about at that time in my life i think i you know that record is very much just captures that you know which is nice i mean it's weird for me you know it's been so long and i don't uh you know it's it's just like it's like its own separate thing that you know what i'm saying i don't i don't think of it as mine i mean unless unless you want to license one of the songs for a movie, then it is absolutely mine. <laughs> but I'm a don't look back kind of dude. That's what I'm sorry. Um, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud of, of yeah, of, of, of the songs for sure. I think, I think those are some of my best songs, but you know, but I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to like try not to dwell too long in, in stuff I've done before. That doesn't do me too much good. I mean, I still play, I love the unknown and the, I'll do Messiah Complex Blues on occasion. It's not a record that I play that much. It's more one that, it's more like a studio kind of record. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Eve Marzale for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream your favorite music as well as most of Barzillet's recorded output on the various streaming platforms. And speaking of recorded output, it was recently announced that Clem Snide would be releasing a new record produced by Scott Avid of the Avid Brothers on March 27th. So be on the lookout for that. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. Another special thanks goes out to my buddy Alex McCullough for helping set up this interview. Speaking of Alex, if you're an artist looking to get a record mastered, I don't think you could do much better than True East Mastering. You can find them at trueeastmastering.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.